science and technology have shaped not only economic empires and industrial landscapes, but also the identities, anxieties, and understandings of people living in modern times. The book I'm looking at today, Made Modern, Science and Technology in Canadian History, explores the complex interconnections between science, technology, and modernity in Canada. Edited by Edward Jones Imhotep and Tina Adcock, it draws together leading scholars from a wide range of fields to enrich our understanding of history inside and outside Canada's borders. Organized around three key themes, bodies, technologies, and environments, the book's chapters examine how science and technology have allowed Canadians to imagine and reinvent themselves as modern. Focusing on topics as varied as colonial anthropology, scientific expeditions, electrotherapy, the occult sciences, industrial development, telephony, patents, neuroscience, aviation, space science, and infrastructure, the contributors explore Canadians' modern engagements with science and technology and situate them within larger national and transnational contexts. The first major collection of its kind in 30 years, Made Modern explores the place of science and technology in shaping Canadians' experience of themselves and their place in the modern world. Edward Jones Imhotep is a cultural historian of science and technology and an associate professor of history at York University. He is the recipient of the Sidney Edelstein Prize in the History of Technology for his book, The Unreliable Nation, Hostile Nature and Technological Failure in the Cold War. Tina Adcock is a cultural and environmental historian of modern Canada and an assistant professor of history at Simon Fraser University. She's an associate of the L.R. Wilson Institute for Canadian History at McMaster University, and the two of them are joining me today to talk about their new book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Edward Jones Imhotep and Tina Adcock to talk about their book, Made Modern, Science and Technology in Canadian History. Edward and Tina, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Carrie Lynn. Yeah, thank you. So to begin, I usually like to ask guests to tell the audience a little bit about yourselves and how you came to work in your fields. So, Edward, do you want to start? Sure. Um, basically, I'm a cultural historian of science and technology. Uh, I work on a lot of different things, but mainly my research ends up kind of circling around two main questions. One is uh, the kind of historical relationship or the boundary between nature and technology. And the second is the relationship between technology and social order. So technology and politics, economics, culture, and so on. Uh, and basically, the way that I got interested in history of science and technology was uh, during undergrad, I just read a, a book, a fantastic book by a scholar named Gerald Holton, uh, who is still a very eminent uh, scholar in the field uh, at Harvard University. He's a historian of physics. And I thought that this was just a fantastic field and wondered if it was possible to end up doing any graduate work in it. And it turned out that there were uh, PhD programs in it. So I decided to apply uh, and was trained in that. These days, I work much more in history of technology, although my training is actually in history of physics. Um, and the rest uh, is history. Fantastic. Tina, how did you end up interested in the history of Canada's North? Well, like Edward, my interest began when I was an undergraduate student. So in my case, uh, it came about from a history course that I took in my second year at the University of Alberta on travel and exploration in the Canadian North. Um, so with the encouragement and support of the course's instructor, Ian McLaren, I actually secured a couple of small grants to do some independent summer research on this subject, um, particularly travel and exploration in the 20th century. 
And I also wound up writing an honors thesis about one expedition from the 1920s and its many afterlives. And even after all this, my appetite for the subject wasn't quenched. So I pursued it at the graduate level at the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge, where I earned master's and doctoral degrees in polar studies, of all things. So, yeah, in other words, like many Southern Canadians in the past and the present, I became interested in the North through reading about it rather than encountering it for myself. And of course, and as Edward will know, this reflects the continuing power of a long-standing and really strong imaginative complex among settler Canadians that's often sort of referred to as the idea of North, and that my colleague Graham Wynne once called Nordientalism, or Edward Said on ice. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great. Isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fantastic. All right. So uh, maybe next, tell us about how this particular book came out or came about, I should say. Well, uh, so it came really out of a conference that I organized. So in in 2013, a very close colleague of mine, uh, Richard Gerald, actually passed away quite suddenly. And Richard has been one of the foundational figures in the, in the field of the history of Canadian science and technology. Uh, and so I decided that it would be a great thing to organize a conference uh, in his honor. And really, the, the, the idea behind the conference was to pick up a number of themes um, in Rich's work that weren't necessarily explicit, but that kind of ran through his work. So Rich was interested in things like institutions and education and disciplines and professionalization and the relationship between science and technology and political power. Uh, but it struck me that a lot of his work actually focused on questions about the modern, science, technology, and the modern, even though he never actually addressed it that way. Uh, and so it would be a good thing then to, to invite a number of scholars to think through uh, threads in his research and, and new directions uh, around that kind of question of science, technology, and the modern. Uh, And so I invited a a number of people uh, to the conference, which took place in April of 2015. Uh, Tina was among them. I had admired her work for a long time, the kind of sophistication that she brought to thinking about questions about science and Canadian history. Uh, And so after the conference, I asked her uh, if she would co-edit the book with me. And she luckily, very luckily for me and for all of us, she agreed to do that. Uh, And so the product is the book that you have before you. Wonderful. Well, let's start with the basics. What is meant by modernity and how is it connected to science and technology? Because it's actually a little more complex than it sounds at first, isn't it? Yeah. How long do you have, Carrie Lynn? <laughs> yeah, well, I know that's a really open-ended question. <laughs> modernity, that's a, it's a big one. Um, I can take a crack at it and then, uh, Tina, feel free obviously to jump in uh, if you want to, if I miss anything, if you want to add anything. Uh, but basically, as you very rightly kind of point to, modernity is just a huge category uh, and there's a lot that's been written about it, especially in the last little while. But the way that we're most interested in it, I think, in the book um, is in two forms that it seems to take uh, as a kind of a conceptual category. So one is that modernity is kind of a period in history. So it, it demarks specifically certain kinds of lar- large-scale structural changes uh, that happen. So, for instance, things like the centralization of the nation state or the rise of the public sphere or the rise of industrial capitalism commerce, bureaucracy, rationalization, just a series of kind of historical processes um, that emerge in a specific moment, um, usually around the kind of 17th and 18th centuries. Um, And the second way that we're interested in it, though, is modernity really as as a set of kind of experiences. Um, So not only the structural changes themselves, but also how it is that people actually 
uh, feel about and experience those kinds of changes. And there are a number of themes, kind of common themes that run through modernity studies, uh, no matter where in the world you end up kind of localizing them. Um, so things, for instance, like the, the, a feeling of uh, that the time or history itself is sped up. The idea of kind of uh, disjunctive changes, that is that there's a, a definitive past, for instance, often where things were done improperly or wrongly or incorrectly, and a kind of a contemporary present uh, in which things are done much better. So that idea, for instance, about progress, um, ideas about kind of hope and fear about the future and about the kinds of changes that are going on, all of those end up pointing also to a kind of an experience of modernity that we're really interested in. And those are the two, I think, main uh, ways in which we're interested in the, in the conceptual category of modernity itself. Okay, Tina, did you have anything to add? Nope, I think Edward's captured that perfectly. Okay, well, sticking with the very um, broad ideas here then, um, how would you say Canada has acted upon a desire to modernize? I can take a punt at this, Edward, and then maybe you could follow up. Uh, so in very broad terms, um, I'd say you see many of the same patterns, historically speaking, in Canada as you do in its probably what's its closest cultural counterparts, so Britain and especially the United States. Uh, but I want to just point out that one of our contributors to this volume, James Hull, actually tackles an aspect of this question about Canada's desire to modernize uh, fairly directly in his chapter. So he argues that the country's society and economy assume their modern forms not so much because of 19th century processes of industrialization and urbanization, as it's often been assumed, but more because of changes associated with the early 20th century, and particularly a move toward industrial research and applications grounded in science and technology and based upon an improved understanding of the natural world. So he argues that actually the second industrial revolution is more important than the first in understanding how Canada came to modernize. And I think what's cool about his work is that it really reflects one of the key aims of our volume, and that is to understand the history of Canadian science and technology, not just as a story of diffusion from European or, for that matter, American origins, but as a product of really specific and situated sets of relationships between science and technology and modern forces in Canada. So in a place informed by particular Indigenous, European and hybrid cultures, not to mention settler colonial anxieties. Yeah, I, I completely agree with everything that uh, Tina has said. And James's work in this volume, I think, on this particular question is, is really interesting. Um, I'd maybe just add very quickly two things. One is that in many ways, a lot of the impulse, I think, in Canada is is not so much an attempt to modernize, but to remain modern. So it's, it's a kind of anxiety that uh, Canadian officials and Canadians themselves often end up having uh, about keeping up. So the idea is that, you know, you have the United States, for instance, that is possibly taking off and doing all kinds of dynamic things, um, or, or Britain, as an example, that is that the world is going to potentially leave Canada behind unless it kind of keeps up with everybody else. And that's a key anxiety um, about the the modern period, especially, is this idea about certain nations feeling like they're going to be left behind. Uh, but the other is is the way in which that attempt to modernize within Canada is often directed at specific groups. So one of the ways in which there is really an attempt to modernize is are the projects that are actually directed often towards Indigenous populations in Canada. Uh, and the idea specifically that these are pre-modern um, cultures and that there's what, what Canada needs, in fact, uh, is to modernize these cultures, that is to 
to stop, for instance, um, the kind of um, uh, non-sedentary lifestyles, for instance, of, of Inuit peoples, or to move, for instance, certain Indigenous communities away from what are considered at that point to be traditional practices towards things like industry, for instance, or mining or helping to construct the dew line. Uh, and so there is this, this tension between the two, I think, on one hand, an attempt to kind of keep Canada modern and keep it up with oh, what Canadians often think of as their peers, but at the same time also to direct kind of modernizing impulses against certain populations in Canada. Hmm. That's really fascinating. Um, as a fellow Canadian, I uh, the first part of what you're talking about, that that uh, anxiety to keep up really rings true. <laughs> I think a lot of Canadians would recognize, um, not themselves necessarily, but their culture broadly as they perceive it, would identify with that. Um, as to the latter, that's kind of sadly colonial, it seems to me. It almost seems paradoxically um, not very contemporary to to have such an, um, but I, I hope you're talking about in these kinds of like efforts to modernize, uh, indigenous peoples or to pressure them to modernize that that's not so much something that's happening still, but maybe in like earlier times in the last century or two. Well, I think, and again, Tina can say much more about this as well. <clears throat> so I, th I think there are legacies of that that we're living with now. We've uh, gone some way, I think, towards recognizing the kinds of attitudes that drive that idea towards modernization. Um, and I think that those kind of critical perspectives um, are, are really welcome. We are talking, I'm talking at least mainly about uh, projects that I know of, for instance, during the Cold War and, and certainly before, but especially in the 20th century where you have uh, these attempts, for instance, to either relocate Indigenous peoples or um, to, to, to alter really lifestyles and ways of life uh, in a way that Canadian officials especially end up seeing as more consistent with a modern nation. So getting away, for instance, from oral traditions, um, you know, instituting certain kinds of schooling, for instance, all of these are really attempts uh, by the Canadian government to kind of modernize what they see as these kind of pre-modern cultures in Canada. Right. Uh, that kind of takes me to my next question, um, which is about uh, a brief passage that you mentioned in your introduction, but that I wanted to ask you more about. And that is a distinctively anti-modern impulse in certain parts of Canada. So can you tell us a little bit about that phenomenon? Sure, I can try to field that question. So anti-modernism emerged around the end of the 19th century as a response to the political and economic and socio-cultural changes bound up in the processes of modernization and perhaps especially industrialization. So the cultural historian Jackson Lears famously describes anti-modernism as, quote, the recoil from a over-civilized modern existence to more intense forms of uh, physical or spiritual experience. And these are often thought to reside in other cultures that seem distant from modern life. So distant from modern life, either in space, like the cultures of East Asia, or in time, uh, like those of the Middle Ages. So basically, you know, taking a step back from the aspects of modern life that were thought to be making people ill in various ways or stressed out, and to seek kind of a sort of therapeutic respite elsewhere, essentially. So in Canada, um, people sought out a variety of activities to try to gain physical and psychological relief from the depredations of modern life. And this really took the form of everything from climbing mountains to collecting folklore and handicrafts to writing sentimental poetry and Mountie adventure stories. So it's a really wide remit of activities. 
One of the interesting things about anti-modernism, though, is that it's a two-faced phenomenon, and it's often described this way. So like the Roman god Janus, it looks forward as well as backwards simultaneously. So anti-modernists desire to retreat to other places or eras outside modernity was often mingled with enthusiasm for the material progress that modernity promised and enabled. So that core tension is part of what makes anti-modernism such a complex and fascinating phenomenon to study. And actually, as um, my fellow Canadian historian uh, Celia Morgan points out, anti-modernism has actually been studied in Canada a lot more than modernity in some ways, um, which I kind, which I find kind of interesting. In Canada, we do seem to always be preoccupied with uh, the project to define ourselves. And so in that spirit, I'll ask, is there a uniquely Canadian style of techno-scientific development? Yeah, I can I can try to take a crack at this as well. The This question about national styles, um, it's it was very, very popular actually within history of science and technology, uh, probably in the kind of 1980s and 1990s. And then it received a lot of kind of critical attention after that. Part of the reaction against it um, is maybe twofold. One is the idea that the idea of a style is a bit essentialist, um, especially for kind of cultural historians, it tends to be a bit too essentialist. And the other is the idea that it's a bit too homogenizing. That is that the idea of a kind of a uniform style that all of Canadian techno-scientific development would somehow ascribe to, uh, subscribe to is, is a little bit much, I think for people. Um, But the, 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 the way in which the question of style actually does become very interesting um, is when you turn it, itself into a historical object, a historical question. So not, is there a Canadian style, but what do people, for instance, at a certain moment in Canadian history understand as a Canadian style techno-scientific development? And how does that structure the kinds of choices, the kinds of rhetoric, the kinds of arguments that they end up making, the way that they end up deploying uh, techno-scientific developments? So as a historical question, I think it's incredibly uh, interesting. Um, Having said that, there are obviously in in any kind of location, a number of kind of structural features that shape the way that that science ends up looking or that technology and the way that technology ends up developing. So like any uh, human endeavor art, for instance, as another example, um, there are kind of larger cultural and political and economic features uh, in Canada that end up shaping the way that that techno-scientific development happens here. But the question of style, I think, is maybe, like I said, a little bit too homogenous and essentialist for people. Fair enough. Um, Would you say then, is it possible to identify um, signature influences, themes, or patterns in Canadian scientific and technological practices? Could you give us any examples of those types of things? I can certainly uh, try. So if, if I draw, for instance, on, on my book rather than on this edited volume, um, there's a pretty good example actually there. So th- that book actually deals with the attempt to extend uh, reliable telecommunications to the Canadian North after the Second World War, so during the Cold War. Uh, and it turns out that uh, it's a high-frequency radio project, a shortwave radio project in particular. And it turns out that uh, Canada is actually affected by communications disruptions in shortwave radio more than any other country in the world uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. And this is because of a series of kind of relatively complicated geophysical properties that Canada has. But the idea is that uh, that project is, is, I think, very interesting because on one hand, it points back to the anxiety that we were talking about earlier, um, Carrie Lynn, about 
keeping up. So the idea is that Canada sees this, Canadian officials end up seeing this as a problem that affects Canada disproportionately. But because Canada also occupies a particularly important place geopolitically within the Cold War, so specifically between the United States and the Soviet Union, under the path that any bombers or ICBMs would end up taking from the Soviet Union, for instance, into the United States, um, then it's it's seen as an opportunity to kind of leverage Canada's very threatened geopolitical position towards a kind of scientific and culture and and technological authority. So the idea is that because the the United States is so interested in these questions about communications in the Canadian North, there's a way to make Canadian research on these questions absolutely central, actually, to the the project of the Cold War itself, and therefore to create a kind of a niche uh, that Canada can occupy that makes its own research incredibly interesting for nations uh, around the world at this point. And that focus on kind of niche, these niches that end up uh, highlighting or leveraging in some ways some aspect of Canada's geographic position or its climate, for instance, uh, or its its uh, its expansiveness, its size. All of these things are ways that we can end up pointing, I think, to themes, at least within Canadian techno-scientific development, um, that characterize in many ways uh, its history over the last few centuries. Yeah, absolutely. I might just add a couple of things here, too. Um, So in our introduction, we point out that environmental historians and historical geographers have also done a a fair bit of thinking about this question, just because they're often interested in science and technology as well. Um, And they've drawn our attention, unsurprisingly, to the influence of non-human factors. So kind of picking up on Edward's point from a different angle, um, they've pointed to the diversity and the extremity of Canadian ecosystems and climates as one key characteristic and also the country's abundance of renewable and non-renewable natural resources. So these two things are often sort of put forward as specific, if not unique, to this country's historical engagements with science and technology. And other historians, particularly of science and technology, have also pointed out the prominence of the state in scientific and technological endeavors in Canada, And I think they're right to a certain extent, but my own research on state science has also made me wary of such claims. And I'm sure Edward would agree here. Um, You know, so I I kind of think, you know, we constantly need to interrogate rather than assume the state's prominence to see whether it claimed more power than it actually possessed on the ground. I think it's really easy to reinscribe familiar nationalist narratives of peace, order and good government and to ignore, for example, the very real influence of, say, American capital and corporations upon science and technology in modern Canada because maybe for various reasons that's not the way we want to think about ourselves or that's not the story we want to tell about ourselves. So actually, I think the great value of studying these subjects is that they, and by subjects I mean uh, science and technology in Canada, is that they can help really puncture certain received narratives about Canada that I think are still in circulation. So we say in the introduction that uh, various of our contributors' chapters uh, demonstrate that Canada is somewhat less northern less peaceful and smaller than we're often tempted to believe. Hmm. That's really fascinating. Um, Sticking with the theme of the fringes, um, you mentioned that um, the subjects of science and technology are often been relegated to the fringes of Canadian historiography. Uh, So why do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think uh, to take a, a quick stab at this, the I think there are a series of very kind of complicated circumstances maybe that feed into this. But 
Uh, one that's, I think, just very basic is the kind of division that seems to exist between the humanities and the sciences. Um, and so I think that, you know, a lot of people, people are streamed relatively early on uh, in our educational systems towards e either the humanities, for instance, or the sciences. And so there's not always a lot of dialogue between those two. And so I think that a lot of uh, historians in general just feel that they're not uh, authorized in some way to, to speak about science and technology uh, because possibly they haven't been trained in it. And so you do have some people who are have backgrounds, for instance, in, in those fields, in those scientific fields, and feel, I think, more comfortable. But often you end up having a kind of a division between the two. Um, and it plays out basically in a kind of relegation of science and technology to these fringes uh, that we ended up mentioning before. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, just to contrast my personal way into this topic with Edwards, I remember there were, uh, when I took uh, history at the U of A as an undergraduate, um, there were courses in the history of science and technology taught by two very good historians, Leslie Cormack and Andrew Ede. And I just remember thinking to myself, well, I'm not really interested in science and technology. You know, I wanted the humanities <laughs> to get away from science and technology, which I was, you know, okay at, but but not great at. And I think that, you know, there there is this kind of, um, I wouldn't call it a fear, but just maybe uh, sort of some anxiety about engaging with topics if you sort of feel like your your natural sort of scholarly or intellectual home is something like English or history or somewhere in the humanities. Um, there's just a bit of, yeah, a bit of concern about engaging with a, a discipline or a field that maybe seems so beyond your expertise and can that you could sort of hardly do it justice. And I think the other element of this, of course, is that even within, uh, you know, professional history, historians are divided. I mean, so history of science, history of technology is its own field um, with its own sort of norms and its own sort of um, institutional structures and things like that as well. So, you know, as someone who's not a trained historian of, historian of science, I, I felt a lot of anxiety myself coming onto this volume. And, you know, it was only because I was working with Edward and I knew that, you know, he would be good enough for both of us if it came down to it, <laughs> that I sort of felt somewhat comfortable coming on board. But, you know, I, even now I wouldn't call myself a historian of science. I'm, I'm a cultural and environmental historian with interests in the history of science, I suppose. So I think that there are a lot of sort of... Um, you know, both imagined, but also quite real divisions that can sort of partition people off from engaging with these kind of topics. I think that's a really interesting perspective. Um, I study literature, and I have an interest in technology and culture as it intersects with literature or as, or as it's represented in literature. And because I have some scientific interests, but like you say, like I uh, I would find the idea of becoming a, uh, a quote unquote real scientist in the hard sciences very intimidating. And so for me, like being able to study it through a literature perspective is almost like a cheater, <laughs> right? Doesn't require quite the same rigor of, um, of constructing uh, scientific experiments or anything quite like that. But um but I'm sorry uh, for that digression, but the book is organized around three key themes. Uh, so bodies, technologies, and environments. And you say that those, uh, quote, reflect traditional and contemporary strengths among historians of Canadian science and technology, including histories, uh, or sorry, historians of medicine, architecture, and the environment. So let's address the section on bodies first. Uh, you write that there's a growing Canadian literature on what you call sensuous and corporeal histories that 
study how modern scientific theories and technological therapies emerged and altered how Canadians thought about the human body. So can you give us some examples of that and talk about the significance of these new perspectives? Do you want to handle sure. that? Uh, I can, I can take, a, take a crack at it. So, um, sure. yeah, as we say, the, uh, the body is increasingly a point of analytical convergence for Canadian historians of many stripes. So just for the... Um, for uh, listeners who aren't maybe familiar with this, I'll mention a sort of few key people and bodies of work. So for historians of technology and the environment, uh, Joy Parr's work on embodied experiences of 20th century mega projects has been key, um, as well as newer work by scholars such as Jessica Van Horsen and Arne Keeling and John Sanlos on the toxic legacies of mining in Canada. So that's one strand. And then historians of medicine, such as Wendy Mitchinson, have also long used the body as a vector through which to comprehend the workings of science, technology, and the modern in Canada, as expressed in particular arenas such as childbirth and the management of obesity. And there's actually a fascinating 2016 collection on the latter topic. I think it's called Obesity in Canada Critical Perspectives or something like that. Anyway, it's really interesting. And then cultural historians of Canada are also joining in this conversation on bodies. Um, I think of my SFU colleague, Nicholas Kenny's fine monograph called The Feel of the City, which explores sensorial engagements with uh, turn-of-the-century industrializing environments in Montreal and in Brussels. Um, so I'm hardly an expert on the embodied turn, but speaking as an environmental historian, uh, bodies matter because they're a key interface through which we encounter and experience and make sense of the world. So they aren't neutral or static repositories for our brains. You know, they're historically variable and historically specific vessels. So, you know, by that reason alone, we as historians have to take them seriously as objects of investigation. And several chapters in Made Modern do exactly that. So Dorotea Guichardo's uh, chapter examines Canadians' encounters with electrotherapy between 1880 and 1920. Um, and she situates electricity as both the source of, but also the answer to distinctively modern ills. It really is a hair-raising chapter. <laughs> the, the experience <laughs> of reading it is quite, uh, is quite interesting. Um, Jan Hadla also has a really interesting chapter uh, about uh, how Canadians basically learned to dial telephones manually and how the process of learning how to dial telephones manually taught Canadian bodies how to be modern by aligning them with trends of mechanization and standardization and a sort of more impersonal approach toward social relations. And I'll just squeeze in one more mention here of Beth Robertson's chapter. So she studies the ways in which spiritualists integrated knowledge produced by modern physicists into their understandings of the body, uh, including dreams that atomic science could one day rejuvenate human bodies and perhaps even make them immortal. So I feel like there's a lot of really cool strands of embodied research in our volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've I've come across uh, some of that stuff on the history of how people thought electricity could be used for health. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yeah, it is kind of terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Tina, I want to ask you about your chapter on George Palmer Putnam's expedition to the Eastern Canadian Arctic. Um, he went up there in the 1920s. Um, so mm -hmm. can you tell us about what you found and how this speaks to the theme of corporeal Canadian history and modernity? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so my chapter approach is the theme of, uh, of corporeality by means of identity. So almost as long as I've been studying this topic, I've been fascinated by the labels that Southerners affix to themselves and to others in order to justify and explain their presence in Northern Canada. Um, there's this amazing quote from one of the people I work, uh, work on, a traveler called P.G. Downs from the 1950s, and it's, it is essentially a meditation on identity. And he basically says, you know, the first thing that everybody in the North asks you when you get there is, what are you doing there? So you have to have a reason for being there. You can't just sort of be there because you wanted to. And this has actually really affected a lot of my thinking on this topic. But anyway, getting back to George Palmer Putnam. So in 1925, without quite meaning to, the Canadian government put themselves in the awkward position of having to define what exactly science and exploration was and what distinguished it from other related activities in northern landscapes. So what happened was the government passed um, something called the Scientists and Explorers Ordinance. And this was meant to enhance the state's sovereign control over foreign field workers wishing to work in the Northwest Territories. Um, and it did this through a mandatory licensing system. So just going back to a theme of our conversation, this about yeah, Canadians being worried about um, falling behind in terms of you know, science and technology in other countries. Another dimension of this is that um, people from other countries were doing science and technology in Canada um, at a sort of greater and more prodigious rate than Canadians themselves. So this is actually what was happening in the North in the 1920s. You were having American and European explorers coming in and basically taking biological and cultural artifacts out of the country. Um, um, and not really sort of giving anything to the Canadian government or to the, the National Museum or anything like that. And this was starting to really worry administrators at that time. So they put in this ordinance so that they could at least have some control over uh, field workers who wanted to do work in the Northwest Territories. Okay, so getting back to the chapter itself. So the ordinance excluded anyone pursuing political or commercial objectives from consideration. So spies and sportsmen were not wanted in the territories. But then civil servants discovered that the line between scientific collectors and sport hunters was a lot thinner than they had realized. And this is where uh, Putnam comes in. So his two expeditions looked scientifically legitimate. So he was a publisher based in New York, but he had sort of scientific personnel with him. So his expeditions looked legitimate. They got permits. It was fine. But when Canadian officials discovered that some of the members of his expedition had shot birds for consumption in the field, there was this whole dipro diplomatic brouhaha that resulted, basically. So my chapter argues that the bodies of these birds should be read as boundary objects. In other words, the different ways that uh, bureaucrats and diplomats and explorers reacted to the killing of these birds actually tells us a lot about the boundary between field science and field sport at this time, and more specifically about the appropriate use and consumption of non-human bodies in conservationist culture, um, hunting cultures, and things like that. So just to kind of uh, uh, zoom out a little bit, so like what I hope to show in this chapter, as in my work more generally, is the remarkable fluidity of scientific identities in an era when professionalization is often assumed to have fixed or sort of stabilized the boundaries of these practices. And I also want to underline the continued capacity of field workers outside the academy, like Putnam, 
to, keep, to contribute to Southern knowledge about Northern environments at this time. So the, the point I'm trying to make is that in this era, and arguably throughout the 20th century, scientists never have had a monopoly on the production of authoritative knowledge. And in the, in the North, they had to share this authority with explorers and trappers and Indigenous peoples and many other people. Okay. Well, I want to move on now to the middle section, which focuses on technology. Edward, your chapter appears here, and you tell the story of Gerald Bull and his development of super guns during the Cold War era. So tell us a little bit about him and why uh, you think his story exemplifies many of the tensions surrounding science, technology, and the modern in mid to late 20th century Canada. Yeah, sure. So I, I don't know how many people will have heard of Gerald Bull uh, before maybe reading this chapter, but uh, he's a fascinating figure. He's actually born in North Bay, Ontario in 1928. He's the ninth of 10 children. His mother actually dies in childbirth, giving birth to her 10th child. Uh, and so as a result of this, in a few kind of complicated circumstances, um, Gerald Bull actually goes off at one point then to live uh, with an aunt and uncle, a maternal aunt and uncle. And he's the only one of his siblings actually to do this. Uh, and so he's actually educated in Kingston. Uh, it turns out he goes to high school there. He graduates at the age of 16 uh, and then goes on to uh, study aerospace engineering at the University of Toronto because it's the only program actually that'll take him at 16 years old. Um, and he graduates relatively quickly. He ends up then going almost directly into a PhD program. Uh, and he graduates in 1951 with his PhD from U of T. And he is at that point, and I think he still holds this record, the youngest PhD ever produced uh, in Canadian history. And he goes off to, to kind of have a number of distinctions that are strange and kind of unique. So he's actually uh, the only person, uh, apart from uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, um, and I think Winston Churchill, to ever receive U.S. citizenship through a special act of Congress. Um, and partly this ends up pointing to the, his place within the kind of sphere of aerospace engineering um, after he graduates. So he, once he graduates, he actually gets uh, enlisted by the, by the Canadian military. And what he is trying to do there is uh, to test the aerodynamic properties of a, a missile called the Velvet Glove missile, uh, which the Canadian government is developing. But it turns out that Canada does, doesn't have uh, a wind tunnel that's large enough to test this missile. And so he decides that he's going to invert the problem and, and actually fire the missile itself out of a huge cannon that he takes from the Canadian Navy. Um, and then photograph it using high-speed photography to figure out how it moves basically during its flight. And so this gets him interested in ballistics. Um, and he ends up developing this kind of dream that he has. He reads a lot of Jules Verne uh, when he's young. And so he ends up developing this dream actually of, of launching satellites uh, into space by firing them out of a cannon from the surface of the Earth. Um, and he goes some way towards uh, realizing this project, kind of first step towards realizing it is when he becomes uh, a professor at McGill University. He launches a program called the High Altitude Research Project, which basically sets up an enormous cannon uh, on the island of Barbados, funded by McGill and by the U.S. Army, uh, and tries to launch probes into space, basically, by firing them out of this huge cannon. Um, but that's too militaristic in the late 1960s for both McGill uh, and for certain aspects even of, of, the, of the U.S. establishment. And so his project basically gets canceled at that point. Uh, and then he decides that he's going to essentially become a weapons consultant. Uh, and he ends up selling his expertise to a number of regimes around the world, including apartheid South Africa. Uh, and this gets him thrown into a U.S. jail uh, for about a year. When he emerges, he 
kind of continues uh, this weapons consulting business that he has. Uh, and he's approached actually in the late 1980s by officials from Saddam Hussein's government. Uh, and then he decides that he's going to work on something called Project Babylon, uh, which is a kind of large-scale modernization project in Iraq, but has as one component of it the construction of a super gun. Uh, so an enormous uh, cannon, basically, that can launch um, satellites possibly into space, but that can potentially also be used, for instance, to bombard uh, Israel. And so he's actually assassinated in 1990 uh, outside his apartment in Brussels. And so that it's a kind of a wild story. Um, in many ways, it's difficult to see in that story anything really kind of representative of, of Canadian techno science uh, during the Cold War. Um, first of all, Bull himself is very peculiar. Uh, he has a lot of kind of idiosyncrasies. His own trajectory it, it seems to be quite unique. Um, the story that I tell also is that his his story itself is actually made possible by. Um, a pretty kind of particular intersection of three much larger themes. So things like the, the history of what projectiles represent over the kind of long history of, of the modern period, uh, a history of islands like Barbados and, and what those islands actually make possible geopolitically, uh, and then this kind of history of rationality and reason during the Cold War. But where Bull, I think, is kind of representative and interesting for what science and technology represents, I think, in, in mid to late 20th century Canada uh, is that his his project is really one of a number of projects that's meant to make Canada into a spacefaring nation uh, during the Cold War. So that's not trivial because the point is that, and a lot of people I think uh, maybe forget this, that that what allows you to become a, a space power during the Cold War is actually um, ICBM facilities, so intercontinental ballistic missile facilities, because something like, for instance, the rockets that end up taking uh, the Apollo astronauts to the moon are actually just modified ICBMs. So you take out the kind of nuclear warhead and you end up putting in a capsule that can end up sustaining uh, human beings. And so if you don't have, if you're not an ICBM nation uh, in the Cold War period, you probably can't participate actually in space activities themselves. And so Canada actually is, is very anxious about this. They don't want to be left behind in the space age. And so they launch a number of projects. One is to actually create uh, international launch facilities, space launch facilities in Churchill that get scrapped relatively easily. Uh, and so then Bull basically ends up proposing this, these cannon launches as a way for Canada to participate actually in the space race without actually having an ICBM program. Uh, and that speaks very much to these anxieties that we ended up mentioning towards the beginning of the program about not being left behind in this age. The interesting thing is, is the way in which that project itself is saleable in many ways to countries outside of Canada as well. The, the idea of a middle power nation, that is that a nation that, you know, it, it isn't a superpower, but at the same time, it en ends up influencing politics and having a say in, in international politics is immensely appealing to, to countries outside of Canada, even though it's something that Canada actually ends up elaborating quite sophisticatedly. Uh, but that's actually what ends up getting uh, bull into his relationship, in fact, with Iraq. That is that the, the same kinds of technology that Bull wants to Canada to adopt to not be left behind is precisely what Iraq is interested in in order to get ahead. It's, it's precisely what they're interested in to become participants precisely in the kind of space race. Hmm. Yeah, I can see how that would make sense. Uh, so no book about Canada would be complete without a section focusing on the environment. So how would you characterize the intersections between the Canadian government, its people, techno-scientific development, and the Canadian landscape? Do you want me to take this one, Edward? 
you are the the expert in environmental history (laughs) and many other things and many other things (laughs) well i'm really tempted to fall back on the old historian saw here and just say that it's complicated um (laughs) but no seriously i think the chapters in this section of made modern do a really excellent job um both individually and collectively of capturing the nuanced and ever-shifting relationships between the actors and institutions and phenomena you've mentioned. So we have um, Stephen Balking, who's written a wonderful overview of what he terms landscapes of science in modern Canada. So he sort of conducts a, what you might call an environmental history of science um, and a sort of review of what that has looked like in modern Canada. So he shows how people have sought to control and exploit and administer the country's environments for greater knowledge or sovereignty or profit, but also how those aims have been facilitated or challenged or frustrated by other human and non-human actors. So I'd really recommend his chapter for people who are sort of interested in the conjunction of environmental history and the history of science and technology. To push a little beyond your question, the other three chapters in this section, each in their own way, point to a larger theme of the book that I think Edward and I are sort of keen to have recognized. And this is that Canadian environments, like Canadian science and technology, have never been just Canadian in the sense that they've never been only Canadian. So they've always interacted with and been influenced by what you might call extra Canadian actors and forces, uh, whether from the US, the UK, or farther afield. So Andrew Stills' chapter, for example, shows how the international circulation of a multi-volume scientific report actually helped to signal Canada's intellectual maturation and raise the profile of Canadian research abroad uh, between the two world wars. And Blair Stein's chapter illuminates how jet-age technologies unsettled Canadians' sense of themselves as a cold-weather people by allowing them to escape winter altogether for sun destinations in Florida and the Caribbean. So snowboarding, in in Stein's sort of analysis of it, became figured almost as a national betrayal, uh, and it led to one MP's call in the House of Commons to ban the tan, which is a fantastic phrase. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Wonderful. Okay. Sorry, was there more on that? I don't know, Edward, did you want to add anything? I, I think you've done a great job actually of encapsulating it. The We, we were really, really happy uh, to incorporate, I think, this section on environments in particular, partly because the history of science and technology also in general is only now really beginning to have close collaborations and, and, and explicit intersections with history of environment, environmental history. Um, and so both of them are these incredibly rich traditions, actually. They both have their own historiographical approaches and so on. But the idea of the intersection between them, I think, is really incredible productive and so it's it's great I think to have this focus section within the larger volume that that tries to make these connections and make them explicit specifically for the Canadian context and it also you know getting back to something I said earlier it just speaks to the the centrality of the environment in sort of the Canadian imagination and the Canadian historical imagination so I think in some sense it would have been hard to have a, a, a book about science and technology in modern Canada without the environment in some way shape or form so I think it it made sense in a way. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to leave our listeners with some broad takeaways from your wonderful book. Uh, Are you able to summarize for us? And I know that's that's perhaps uh, a ridiculous thing to ask, uh, but (laughs) are you able to summarize for us how science and technology have played a central role in the creation of modern Canada? 
Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't want to end up giving any kind of master narrative. As much as this is a book about modernity, I don't want to end up giving <laughs> a master narrative about about how uh, science and technology have played that central role. But I will just say, maybe just returning to your very first question, Carrie Lynn, um, that one way to think about it is precisely in these two registers that we ended up mentioning before. So that on one hand, um, the relationship of science and technology to modernity is is about the place of science and technology in these large-scale historical transformations or historical processes that we mentioned before. So things, for instance, like the centralization of the Canadian state, which is often made possible, for instance, by things like technological developments as well, uh, or the rise of certain kinds of economies uh, or the, of the public sphere. So all of these things are, are ways in which you can th- you can see the role of science and technology actually within those kinds of larger processes. But then there's also the question, obviously, of, of experience as well. Um, and when we think about the, the the experiences that our fellow historians end up writing about in Canadian history throughout uh, what we consider to be kind of the last three centuries, let's say at the very least, we can end up seeing science and technology appearing again and again and again in kind of the material infrastructure and in, in, in concepts in ideas, for instance, about how it is that um, that Canadians are, are positioned themselves within uh, the nation, how they relate to one another, what their health is about, what kinds of foods, for instance, they, they should end up eating. All of these things are ways in which the very experience, I think, of, of being uh, a modern citizen in Canada is shaped actually by science and technology in some way or another. So although it's a, a kind of a special case of a larger uh, example of modernity, there are very, very specific lessons that we can end up taking about how contemporary Canada certainly is formed by these, but also about how the kind of historical examples that we're always interested in uh, end up being shaped precisely by science and technology in crucial ways. Yeah, I, that that is a really good answer, Edward. Um, Carrie Lynn, might I just add a couple more things? For sure, absolutely. So I, yeah, I was thinking about this, and obviously it is difficult to kind of sum up in, in a few words, but I'd say, you know, to borrow a term from the anthropologist James C. Scott, um, both science and technology have helped to make Canada legible. So they've helped make its inhabitants and its landscapes easier to see, and thus easier to comprehend, or at least they've offered the illusion of providing this kind of visibility and understanding Uh, particularly, although not exclusively, to settler colonial governments and other institutions. And of course, many theorists, not least Foucault, have framed this relationship between knowledge and power as a distinctively modern one. So savoir in the service of pouvoir, the gathering and analysis of information as a prelude to action. So I think one big takeaway is that science and technology have given modern Canadians confidence They've given modern Canadians confidence and means to grasp and to mold the country around them, even if the results have not always been what they expected or wanted, something that's arguably arguably been more the rule than the exception. I guess the other thing I'd say is that the idea of modern science and technology, as we've discussed already in this conversation, has also had a powerful aspirational allure for a nation that's long suffered from colonial cringe. So that's often felt and has often been figured by others as less mature or less powerful than other nation states. So, you know, Edward and you and I have talked about this already, but obviously investing time and money and energy in scientific and technological activities was often framed as a patriotic and a diplomatic endeavor. So by enhancing Canada's capacity in these areas, both the lives of its citizens and the international reputation of Canada would be enhanced, or so many people believed. So 
you know, I think there's elements of control and also sort of elements of means to power in, in, in the, the history of Canadian science and technology that sort of stick out for me. Hmm. Well, Edward and Tina, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. But before we go, I want to give you a chance to tell us what you're working on now. Sure. T- Tina, do you want to go ahead or I can jump in? It doesn't make uh, You can go first. Great. So um, I'm working on a few things now, but maybe I'll just tell you about two of them. Uh, so one is a, a shorter term article that I'm working on called Architectures of Darkness. Uh, and it's basically about the development of uh, photographic manufacturing facilities. Um, so these huge buildings, these factories, for instance, to photograph uh to sorry to manufacture photographic film so the the crucial thing about these these facilities as you can imagine is that they have to be kept in complete darkness the the actual manufacturing uh facilities within them and so it's a, an interesting way to rethink kind of certain aspects of the history of architecture because architects often end up thinking about buildings uh, and organizing them precisely around light and so what happens when architects start thinking about buildings organized around darkness rather than about light but it also lets um, us talk a little bit about disability history because it turns out that uh, a crucial uh, contingent of workers in these facilities were actually blind people uh, who were actually employed precisely because they could maneuver, for instance, within these spaces. Um, so that's a, a large, a smaller scale project. And then the large project that I'm working on uh, now finishing is a, a book project called Reliable Humans, Trustworthy Machines. And it picks up again on this interest that I have in technological failure. Uh, basically, it ends up investigating how people from the kind of mid 18th century, late 18th century until the middle of the 20th century uh, understood or experienced technological failures as a problem of the self. So as a problem of the kinds of people uh, that failing machines either created or threatened or presupposed. Hmm. Okay. Edward, I have to say you always work, work on the coolest topics. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's only because we haven't heard yours yet. <laughs> so, um, Carrie Lynn, I'm finishing a book manuscript on the cultural history of Northern Canadian exploration between about 1920 and 1965. So, It basically uses the entwined lives and careers of four explorers to, well, to explore the modern contours of this activity. And I argue that exploration in the 20th century, or during this time anyway, constituted a particular way of knowing and structure of feeling founded on the core value of proximity. Um, I think we often talk about sort of um, knowledge about the North in terms and in ways that increasingly incorporate discourses of distance. Um, so I'm interested in kind of exploring this alternative, almost forgotten history of proximity as a way to kind of know and understand the Canadian North. So I'm really interested in questions of expertise and authority. I look at how these explorers constructed and defended proximate kinds of expertise and authority. And I also ex- assert that settler Canadians need to take a hard look at their own continuing proximity to explorers and exploratory mindsets today. So in other words, we need to talk about explorers maybe more than we've been doing so far, even though some people would argue that we've already talked about explorers so much. What, what more is there to say about explorers? <laughs> and believe me, I'm aware of that too. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of, you know, what can I say that hasn't already been said already? And I hope there'll be some interesting things. Um, I'm also pursuing a handful of article-length projects that speak to various transnational influences upon the colonial exploration and administration of northern Canada. So, you know, I've 
by the time my book comes out, I probably will have been researching this topic in one way or another for 20 years, which seems like a ridiculous amount of time. But I think one thing I didn't realize when I began as a sort of naive, young, uh, bright-eyed Canadian historian is how much time I would be spending in foreign archives or with foreign historiographies mm-hmm. just to pursue the, the 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 things that are happening in Canada at this time, and especially in northern Canada. You know, it really... And of course, we think of the circumpolar Arctic today, right? And we realize that it's a transnational realm of um, activity, but it, it was also a transnational realm of activity in the past. And so I'm looking forward to archival trips to uh, to Britain and to the U.S. to sort of eke out and tell a few more of these stories uh, from abroad. So, you know, I never imagined I'd be spending this much time abroad as a Canadian historian, but you, you have to be willing to follow your actors where they go across borders. Well, that really demonstrates um, the point that I think that you made earlier, Edward, that um, that Canadian history is not just uniquely Canadian, or it's not just only Canadians that are that are part of Canadian history. There's so much influence from outside. Yeah, very much so. So the the example of bulls certainly represents that, but it's really, I think, uh, Tina's insight as well that that precisely that Canadian history is not just Canadian history; that it's not just about history in Canada. And that you have to end up being willing like, to trace out these kinds of influences to other places, parts of the world. And it's one of the things that I think that Tina's work ends up showing so brilliantly. Um, it's not just an insight that she makes about the book, but it's something that she actually realizes in her own work as well. Oh, thanks, Edward. And I mean, I think it, it goes back to something that we've talked about throughout this conversation, too, which is just... Um, you know, I think one reason why uh, Canadian historians have been a little bit reluctant to kind of uh, recognize foreign in- influences upon us is because, you know, as you say, Carolyn, we've been trying to figure out who we are, you know, and who we are as distinct from from other people. And so I think sometimes that's led to a little bit of a narrowing of the field of vision and a sort of reluctance to kind of acknowledge that, you know, non-Canadians have also played a role in uh, you know, how our society and culture and economy has kind of looked over time. But I think that, you know, not to kind of say that we've cast off the, the cloak of colonial cringe or anything like that, but just to say that there's a little bit more confidence now, I think, and a sort of increased willingness to kind of look beyond the nation. So in the introduction to Made Modern, we talk a little bit about the rise of kind of transnational and comparative and international histories of Canada. So there's such a large literature that's emerging now. And I think we're really delighted to kind of add this piece of the puzzle to it. Uh Oh, that's fantastic. I just want to say as well, this is the first time I've heard the expression colonial cringe. And I just love it. I think it just captures the feeling so well. But uh, thanks again for being on the show today, guys. I really enjoyed your book. I really enjoyed chatting with you about it. I'm really glad you were able to make it. Thank you so much, Carrie Lynn. We really appreciate it. It It's great talking to you. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Thanks so much. All right. Well, hopefully we'll have you back with some future books. We'd love that. That would be great. Thanks. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.